Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. As the summer rainy season nears an end, we look at how Arizona's roadways fared through the monsoon. It shouldn't surprise any longtime Arizonans that this year's monsoon has been hit or miss, depending on where you live. While the official total for Tucson, taken at Tucson International Airport, measures around four inches of rain this monsoon, Rain gauges elsewhere in the city have measured almost double that total. And gauges in places like Cochise County and the state's pine forests have totals in the upper teens with more possible this weekend. With those notable rain totals, some places have been coping with periodic road closures for the past two months. So why are roads in places like Pima County so often flood-prone when these annual storms hit? To answer that question, we spoke with Matt Sierras, a division manager for the Pima Department of Transportation. I started by asking him if the past few months have been normal or abnormal for monsoon-related road closures. It's, it's in line with last year, um, which, la- as you know, last year was a heavy rain uh, monsoon season. So um, we started off a little slow. The, the beginning of the monsoon was, was relatively slow. We had a few, you know, small showers here and there but as of late um it's really picked up and the amount of water that that we've received uh has been pretty significant so yeah we've been we've been pretty busy um our crews have have responded to these you know to these flooded areas and we've had to close a lot of roads uh, due to the flooding so it's been a busy year yes it seems when I get those alerts that the, the county sends out, it's always the same places, more or less. There are certain places we just know flood. Why are some areas just more flood prone? And is there something that the county can do or or not to to alleviate some of that? Well, the majority of those areas are, are dip crossings. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they, they're, they're prone to flood. We haven't identified um, so, yeah, we're aware of the locations um, as far as, you know, our response to them. Really, at this point, we just we can only just get out there and, and try to close the roads. And once they get, you know, once the rain has stopped and the flooding uh, you know, has gone away, we can get out there and open them up and clean them up. But, yeah, our response is getting out there right now to these these areas that are prone to the flood and, and try to prevent people from trying to cross these dip crossings and then getting out there in a timely manner and try to get them cleaned up so we can get that road opened up to the traveling public. I have no doubt that when people come up to those dip crossings and they're closed because of flooding, somebody sits in their car and after they decide not to drive through them, which we know they shouldn't do, uh, they think to themselves, why isn't there a bridge here? How do you decide when to put in a bridge? When is it practical to get rid of those dip crossings and allow the water to flow under a roadway with a bridge? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's it would be nice to... to you know, have bridges um, installed at all these locations or, you know, some other type of infrastructure to help get the water through. But really, it's just the, the amount of dollars that's required to, to build, you know, bridges with, uh, you know, the county wouldn't be able to to sustain that type of the financial impact of, of at, at all these locations. So, um, but from my standpoint, from a maintenance standpoint, um, you know, we just out there responding and, and maintaining the area. So, uh, that would that would be a conversation that our our planning and engineering um, department or division rather would take a look at. Plus our uh, our um, capital program office that handles new construction. Um, that that would be a question they would they would need to answer. You know, we just like I said we're out there from a maintenance standpoint, just responding. But but 
you know, general answer is just the amount of money it would cost to to install, you know, bridges at all these dip crossings um, would be a very, very heavy dollar amount. So. so when you say your crews go out there and reopen the road, what does it take to get a road reopened? Obviously, move the signs out of the way and no water, but it, it seems like there's more to it than that. So typically, uh, you know, the water floods the, the area. Um, so there's water visible. Once the water dries up, then there's there's some silt and sand and mud and other debris that's in the roadway. So typically, um, we're out there removing that from the area and then getting the area swept up, just making it safe for, for vehicle um, vehicles to travel through there. Um, there are, however, occasions where, depending on the severity of the, of the flood, um, you know, damage, significant damage to the roadway, where maybe sometimes the road gets undermined. Um, and then we have to, you know, of course, shore up the area to make it safe. So um, more often than not, it's just cleaning up the removal of some sand and mud and silt and whatnot. Sometimes there's, you know, debris and branches and things like that that are in the roadway. So just getting it cleaned up. But but sometimes, like I said, there's extensive damage. We have to go in there and, and do some paving and, and backfilling and repair the road to make it safe. You mentioned paving, and as we were talking about earlier, there are some roads that those dip crossings, they flood on a regular basis. Do you try and not pave them during monsoon and wait until after the season, or is it one of those things that there's damage, it gets fixed right away? Uh, great question. I mean, it would depend on the severity. Um, you know, anything we can, what we ideally what we like to do is, is try to hold it together until after the monsoon's over. So we're not duplicating our efforts. Of course, depending on the severity, you know, we have to make it safe. So, you know, oftentimes that could lead to an extended closure. Um, and there are some repairs we could do like a slurry backfill, things like that to make it safe. You know, when all possible, we try to do the final repair um, after the monsoon. So we're not duplicating our efforts and wasting resources, but it really depends on the situation. I hate to be vague, but it really, you don't know what you're going to get. Sometimes mother nature decides what we do. So we have to just kind of respond as best we can and, you know, go from there down the situation at hand. How do you all decide when to close a road? We've talked about reopening a road, but is it height of water, speed of water, do you close roads in advance because, you know, oh, this is going to flood. So we're just going to close it, you know, as the storm's coming into town. How do you make those decisions? It, it's a judgment call in a lot of cases. Um, oftentimes, if, if we are standby personnel, you know, we're, we're aware of storms are coming in. You know, we'll have them get out there ahead of time um, and be as proactive as possible and go ahead and put those barricades up to, as a precaution. Um, oftentimes, it's, you know, the storm hits and we're you know, we're, we're just responding and we're getting out there. So I guess it depends on the severity of the storm. You know, if there's any type of water in there, um, you know, we'll go ahead and close it down. We'd rather err on the side of caution and close those roads to make it safe because it, it can change in the blink of an eye. You know, the water could be, it could be dry um, in that particular location, but water's coming heavily from, from you know, upstream location. And in a matter of minutes, it can, you know, it can flood that area. So um, we try to get out there and be as proactive as possible. And a lot of times, you know, we're always going to err on the side of caution. So, uh, just, you know, for, for listeners, keep that in mind. You may not see it um, water visible at the time, but, but you know, we're not closing the roads just to, to close the roads. They're, they're done with the safety component in mind. So um, hopefully they understand. We've been talking a lot about monsoon, um, which unfortunately looks like is getting close to the end for this year. But those of us who've been here know 
that rain will come again, you know, first part of the year. Do you get the same road closures at that time of year or is it not so severe? We, we do, um, but it's not as severe. This monsoon season is really, really, excuse me, where we have a lot of closures um, and all over, all over town. The winter rains, we do have closures associated with it, um, but, but the monsoon time at these dip crossings is really the height of our season. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. That was Matt Sierras, a division manager with the Pima County Department of Transportation. The rainiest spot in Arizona this monsoon is one that many Tucsonans may be familiar with, Willow Canyon. It's home to a handful of cabins on Mount Lemmon, about five miles southeast of Summerhaven. So far this monsoon, Willow Canyon has received nearly 25 inches of rain. That's a little more than what the area sees in an average year. To hear how Willow Canyon and other parts of the Coronado National Forest cope with a rainy season while minimizing impact on preserved land, we spoke with Ed Monin, an engineer with the forest. So, as is typical with any given season, monsoon season, we have certain areas of the forest that fare better than others. And uh, we do have our trouble spots that we get every year. But uh, each year we have different areas where we have uh, you know, the roads don't fare well at all. Um, but then some areas, they do well. It just depends on uh, how good our drainage features hold up and how powerful the storm events are in any one given area. As we mentioned, Willow Canyon is the star right now, getting uh, the most rain as we move towards the end of this monsoon. It's just down from Summerhaven, which we know is so popular, especially in the summer. What does the forest have to do to prevent, you know, damage to these areas caused by flooding, especially in popular areas? Yeah, so the key is to have your drainage features properly designed for the expected flows and to have them properly maintained, uh, you know, on an annual basis. So uh, typically pre-monsoon, we go through a lot of these areas and we'll run our force account maintenance crew over the roads. You know, we blade, we improve the drainage structures, we clear culvert inlets and outlets to make sure that all the drainage is, is, is flowing properly underneath the roadways. And um, that's really the best we can do is we maintain the existing infrastructure and then we just, we really just hope that it holds up. For areas that are more remote, maybe less visited, like the Chiricahuas that are all part of the Coronado National Forest, does the strategy change for those areas because they're less popular than Mount Lemmon, say? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, we try to ensure that our transportation system forest-wide is ready for the expected precipitation, but we will generally prioritize the higher popular you know, the more popular uh, areas that uh, get a higher concentration of recreation, we do tend to prioritize those areas when it comes time to address uh, road maintenance damage that has occurred due to precipitation events. The monsoon, of course, is part of that natural cycle that uh, makes the desert the desert. And you all have to balance the nature versus the 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 public use, if you will. How do you balance those two things? Well, it's a delicate balance. We have to always keep in mind 
what the natural element is going to lend us. So, for example, um, as you're aware, you know, on the Catalinas in the more in the more popular recreation area on the Coronado, we did have the Bighorn Fire a couple of years ago, and this, you know, these these type of events, uh, is whenever you have a fire event, you tend to get more of a flow coming off that landscape. So we do have to, you know, we do have to take a look at that from an administrative perspective and decide if certain areas are not safe to have the public recreating in during the monsoon season. Um, so I think that's really how we balance that out. We do it administratively where areas where we know are subject to potential high flood flows, we, you know, we try to uh, work towards keeping the public aware of the inherent dangers and potentially close those areas if need be. You brought up the Bighorn Fire, which brings us to fires. Right now, the Mount Lemon area is so green. Sitting down here in Tucson and looking up at the Catalinas, it's just amazing how green they are. But we know as soon as the rain stops, that green's going to turn brown. Uh, what is... What does that make you all think about when it comes to fires? Well, that's an annual risk that we have to deal with. Outside of monsoon season, things tend to get really dry. So the Forest Service is very actively engaged, you know, in the fire effort. And so that's uh, basically we're on point when we're out of monsoon and we are always looking at, um, you know, what the moisture content is out there. So we know what the we can better assess what the fire risks are at any given time. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. All right. Thank you. That was Coronado National Forest Engineer Ed Monin. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking at how monsoon rains are affecting roads and highways around the area. For Flagstaff, the monsoon moisture couldn't come soon enough. Early seasonal rainfall helped tamp down the pipeline fire to the city's east. That fire burned up to the northern boundary of where the tunnel fire had hit in April. But the rain that helped slow the pipeline fire marked the start of an above-average monsoon, and those rains have caused issues in the area where the two fires burned. Flooding and soil erosion have damaged area roadways and private property, and a major arterial roadway, U.S. Route 89, has been closed seven times due to flooding issues. The Buzz producer Zach Ziegler recently went on a tour with Lucinda Andriani, Flood Control District Administrator for Coconino County. Andriani started by recalling the last time the area burned in a wildfire a dozen years ago. This eastern flank was also burned during the Schultz fire in 2010. And so the pipeline fire basically reburned a large area of the Schultz fire but it also importantly burned some sections of the forest up very high on the peaks and very, very steep slopes that probably hadn't burned in well over 100 years. So a lot of dead and down, burned very, very hot, very severely. <clears throat> a combination of steep slopes and severely burned ground creates a phenomena called hydrophobic soils. Now, we've had so much rainfall already this year the soils have transitioned off of being hydrophobic to now basically we're losing all the soil up there. And you can see 
like these big areas that are denuded now and that's because we're getting a tremendous amount millions and millions of tons of sediment and and rock and debris is coming down off of that mountain now as a result we call it the unraveling of the watersheds the tunnel fire burned closer to the neighborhoods actually and it burned an area that hadn't burned during Schultz largely that's flatter ground the flood impacts off a tunnel were very limited Unfortunately, the flood impacts off of the pipeline fire have been very severe and repetitive. You just so happen to be good enough there to stop us right in front of a sign that says watch for water on the roadway. People might look at this highway and just say, oh, that's, you know, the road up to Page or Lake Powell if, if you're interested in the area as far as uh, tourism and visitors. But this road's a, a little more of an arterial roadway Tell me who uses this road. Well, um, this is an extensive economic corridor in that it connects Arizona to Utah and Colorado and states to the north. Um, it's also a, a major connector to our tribal nations, primarily the, um, the Navajo Nation as well as other tribal nations that are in this area. So, and then of course, connect connectivity to Page uh, St. George, Utah, the Kanab area, and then into Colorado as well. Um, and what we've seen actually the last several years is that the truck traffic on Highway 89 has gone up considerably. And what we understand from the trucking industry is that truckers are trying to avoid going through Las Vegas. Now that the monsoon has passed for the most part, is there any talk of, of what work can be done before this time of year rolls around next year? Uh, well, we're very much focused on long-term mitigation. And uh, we've identified a set of projects within each corridor, each of these flood corridors. And um, if we can secure the federal funding that we need, we want to begin to implement those right away. They will not be all in implemented though before the next monsoon season. Um, we're looking at upwards of 125 to 150 million dollars worth of work that has to be done to actually effectu effectuate mitigation. So we're on landfill road now. This is the road that goes out to the regional landfill, um, which is one of the assets that's at risk for flooding. And the flood water that comes off the government tank watershed comes through this area and it once after the highway it divides into two flows and one flow is is sending flows right now into Doney Park uh, which is downstream a couple of miles from here and we've seen significant flooding there it's it's more it's flatter there so we get more ponding type effect there uh, versus here, we'll have very rapid, you know, flash flooding, very dangerous flash flooding. Here's some evidence here. You can see these eroded channels. We've had to throw some rock in to try to support the channels. And we're looking at measures both. We're looking at adding additional berms through this area. So you're using these berms to channel all this water away from uh, some some important sites, homes. We're actually not channeling it away. What we're doing is slowing it down. If you note this set, the soil here is all cinders. You know, the peaks are volcanoes. 
you know, these little little hills here these are all cinder cones and if we can slow the water down it will sink soak in this is silt and ash off the burn area that's flowed down here this is about seven to eight miles from the actual top of that peak that's how far this this flood water is coming if you go up to the top here we'll see you know you'll see the big eroded channels um, a lot of erosion impacting a lot of these properties here um, yeah starting to see sandbags a little more yeah there. a lot well and you'll note all the bay there's barriers behind pretty much every one of these homes some of these homes post Schultz they built they built flood walls but then you're gonna you're seeing all the barrier here now um, just about every home in this neighborhood now has barrier and or sandbags. Uh, most have barrier and sandbags <laughs> because it's been so hard hit. So as we look at this small trench that's formed here, I mean, it's, it's maybe at its wider spots, two feet across, but at its deepest, it's easily three, four feet yeah, deep. That, I'm guessing that tells us something about the speed of the water. That's yeah, no, the speed of the water, and I can share some videos with you if you want to see some videos. And there's a video, we had a night event, a night flood event out here, and I'll tell you, it's somebody looking out the window, and you can see the barrier, and you can see the water beyond the barrier, and it's, it's traveling 20, 30 miles an hour. So it will easily sweep you know, an individual. Um, we had a close call out here with one of the residents shared with me that his son almost got, his adult son, almost got swept away. Um, it's, you know, the level of anxiety and fear, it, it's real. This flash flooding is real. This is very severe flash flooding. Um, very dangerous, very, very dangerous. This is a channel that we constructed post Schultz as well. This is the Brandis Way corridor. And you can see how it's both eroding and in various points either collecting sediment and rock or eroding away, um, having a big impact. Um, that, although this mitigation has been pretty effective, we had a really big event on August 13th it backed up here, it brought down a lot of trees. There were, there were burned trees, you know. Um, we're taking out this concrete apron right here. Um, it's, it's with the amount of water and sediment we're getting now, it's not functioning. When you say that it has to be removed, is it just that what was, what's here is insufficient or was the, the concrete uh, kind of counterproductive? because of the volume of water and sediment that we're getting now it was designed to kind of be a capture point for sediment that we could easily clean out that was the and it worked that way historically um, again this was another corridor that other than a thousand year rainfall event in 2018 we saw no impacts once these mitigation measures were constructed this is a head cutter an eroded channel you can see here going down through a private property and you can see the impact and um, and this is you can see all the rock here we actually harvested the rock for mitigation off of the these properties but you can see some of it piled um, none of this rock was here before we had the pipeline
this one, I mean, you're talking yeah. seven feet deep and and more like uh, six feet across. I mean, that's that's yeah. quite a channel that that has cut. And that's pretty typical. And the further up you get, the worse they are. So the channels up on Forest Now are anywhere from 10 to 30 feet deep. And they just continually slough off and erode. On August 17th, we hosted um, Congressman O'Halloran and the, the district hosted uh, some officials from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, as well as the U.S. Forest Service, as well as Federal Highways. And um, we did a meeting, walked through all the long-term mitigation plan and so forth with them. And then we brought them out on a tour. Well, it, it rained. That was one of the big rain events in this corridor. In seven minutes, we went from no water in this channel to this channel being full, but almost full of water. And it was going about 25, 30 miles an hour. It was keeping, like we were going along, it was keeping up with us. And we went down, it overtopped lower down here and it, they closed the road further down. So we turned here and we came back around. So they had closed the road here. So we had to turn around and go back up and then everybody was concerned, where was the highway gonna close? They got to see the real deal. They got to see what people are experiencing. And uh, I mean, when a road closure happens across, you know, especially across something like 89, how long does it take to get it opened back up? Most of these closures have been anywhere from four hours to, I think we've had a closure up to seven or eight hours by the time they can get all the material off the road and um, get the culverts open back up. And Thank you for, for taking me on this tour of the area. Absolutely, thank you. Appreciate your interest in uh, helping us communicate what people are confronting up here. That was Lucinda Andriani, Coconino County's Flood Control District Administrator, speaking with the Buzz producer, Zach Ziegler. And that's the Buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we look at how staffing shortages are impacting area law enforcement and what departments are doing to try and get more people in uniform. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larned. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.